0: Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Sean Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? We're going to be talking about an open declaration of Cold War II, and you won't believe who it's from. We'll be talking about Janet, Yelling, uh, Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, going to Beijing. And then we'll be talking about the massive unrest that took over France over the past week, all that and more coming up. rapid fire news so we have first and foremost america preparing to celebrate our 248th birthday ah it feels like yesterday when we fought the british for our independence where did the independence go (laughs) but yeah happy fourth of july to everyone as of now it's gonna be tuesday but whenever you're listening to this it might have passed but happy fourth of july yes sir We have Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. I said Jair. We have Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro being banned from elections until 2030. So if you remember back, uh, what was it, two years ago, when Brazil had this incredibly tight election, which many had compared to to the 2020 election in the United States, which led to the slim, very slim ousting of Jair Bolsonaro now some claim fraud I know I do for the 2020 election in the United States but I'm not well versed enough in Brazilian politics to make similar assertions so I think we'll just wait and see on that one uh he then fled to Florida uh, Bolsonaro did and so now he's banned from participating in Brazilian elections until 2030 we'll see if something happens later on we'll see if he just chooses to stay in the United States as a political exile like Juan Guaido. All the, and I, again, I'll express like I did back then. I am not comfortable with every political exile who loses an election coming to the United States and then trying to continue the fight from here. No, no, no. This is not your new base of operations. If you're going to come here, you're American and that's that. You don't come here and then try to form a government in exile. No, that's not what we're here for. You can go somewhere else for that. But that being said, We'll see what comes of this. We have an admiral of the Russian Far East Fleet, uh, Nikolai Yevmenov, meeting with the Chinese Minister of National Defense, Li Shangfu, and they met. And Shangfu stated specifically that he hopes for he hopes for regular, organized. What what am I? I think the autocorrect messed up my notes here. He hopes for. Uh, To regularly organize, there we go, he hopes to regularly organize, and this is Shang Fu, he hopes to regularly organize joint training, joint patrols, and joint war games between the Russian Navy and the uh, Chinese Navy, and perhaps even the Russian Navy and the Chinese land and air forces as well. Because I believe that they do want Russia's support when the Taiwan question is forced to the table and it has to be resolved. And it's going to be resolved through force of arms because, well, the United States won't leave it alone. And quite frankly, even if we started leaving it alone now, it's too much of a loose end for the Chinese to leave because they left it alone in 1949. And now look at them. They're in this tight spot where they're trying to finish the reunification of their country. And yes, it is their country. Both they and the Taiwanese agree to that. They're they're trying to finish the reunification of their country, and the United States is cock-blocking them. So now you have to have a war with the United States if you want to finish what you started. So, they're going to want Russia's back, although I don't believe that will come in a military sense uh, in terms of a direct intervention. I don't think Russia will be directly involved in the Taiwan War, similar to how China is not directly involved in the Ukraine War. Russia will cover the diplomatic flank of China, just as China has done for Russia by essentially acting as a middleman for Russian oil and natural gas, and as a major trading partner to cover Russian losses from being suddenly and swiftly cut off, uh, swiftly, get it? Suddenly and swiftly being cut off from Western markets, direct access to Western markets anyway, but by way of the Chinese middleman, they can tap those exact same markets Making the exact same money because the Chinese are buying the the oil and the resources, and then it's the Europe, it's everyone, the Europeans and the Americans. Uh, how we ended up dependent on the Russians for oil is uh, another question. Uh, I know the answer: uh, we destroyed our own productive capacity. But yeah, China by not being involved in the war and by staying neutral technically, while. Leading to the side of Russia, gave Russia cover. They covered Russia's flank in a way that allowed Russia to focus purely on the war. And well, the Russians are not purely focused on the war. They're they're doing a whole bunch of things. They're actually leading the, the move to the multipolar world while fighting this war. But China has been very uh, prominent in allowing them to do that because had their economy collapsed had they had no trading partners to turn to after being cut off from SWIFT, we'd be looking at a very different situation. Perhaps the Russians would have gone in a lot harder if they had been hit harder by the sanctions. But by having China and by having India there as well to cover their flanks, Russia could take their time, handle this in a slow and methodical way, limit civilian casualties, and I think a similar situation is going to play its out Going to play itself out with China and Taiwan, although the economic aspect of that is going to be a little different because the Chinese are a massive market that can easily absorb Russian goods and so create an economic boom. in Russia, Russia can't really do the same for China, not really, in terms of buying Chinese goods, especially when the Russians are trying to reindustrialize themselves, but. Russia will be able to provide the raw materials, the energy inputs necessary for a Chinese uh, manufacturing giant, which will be brought to bear for this war. And the Chinese mobilization isn't necessarily going to be a mobilization of tens of millions of men, although we might see that. And that'll be a, a, a horrifying statistic for people in this country who think that we're going to go over there and fight and win a war with China. To suddenly see 10 million Chinese men added to the reserves is going to be one hell of a prospect, but it's going to be those production figures that kill. Like We're struggling against Russia right now. What do you think happens when the Chinese mobilize for war? It's a wrap. It's a done deal. And the Chinese and the Russians are using uh, largely the same artillery rounds, the the same measurements, uh, 150 millimeter or so, meaning the Russians can give their surplus production to the Chinese. Because the Russians, after the war, are going to have to rebuild their stockpiles of military equipment and ammunition because they're going to be maintaining a larger army now. Which means that they're going to continue production after the war in Ukraine is over and surplus is going to go to China. They're going to have China's back. And although the Chinese probably won't really need it, they're a really big power. They are the largest economy in terms of purchasing power parity. They're the largest economy, they're the largest manufacturing power, they have the largest navy, they have the largest army. It's. They are the number one power in all but uh, financial control terms, in all but, you know, overseas military bases and assets and whatnot. Then the United States is a competitor. But for all intents and purposes, the Chinese have truly already surpassed the United States. It's just a matter of admitting it. So. With this meeting between the Russian Navy, this admiral from the Russian Navy and the Chinese Minister of Defense, we can sort of confirm what we already knew, which is that the Russians are going to have China's back when this comes to pass because it's very interesting that they chose to have this meeting between the Chinese Defense Minister and a Russian admiral for specifically the Far Eastern Fleet. Just very very uh, interesting thing, interesting thing to note. Uh, Speaking of Russia, Russia and Arabia are going to cut production, oil production, by a further 1.5 million barrels per day, with the 0.5 coming from Russia itself and the other million, I believe, being footed by Arabia, which brings the total amount of OPEC's cut production to just over 5 million barrels a day. So we have watched them slash 5 million barrels a day of oil that they could have been producing. They're no longer producing as a part of these production cuts. And again, as I bring up every time we talk about these oil production cuts, we would be thanking the Saudis if we were still producing our own oil. But because we're not, we are artificially vulnerable to things that really shouldn't affect us, like other countries deciding that they don't want to produce oil. Okay, well, we'll just produce our own. Oh, but we killed our oil production, so now we just have to sit here twiddling our thumbs, wondering why the gas prices keep going up at the pump. Oh, boy. This is going to be fun. Uh, as, as a side note, I just I saw that the, my state was getting rid of the uh, tax exemption for the, the fuel consumption, and I'm like, why do we have a fuel consumption tax? <laughs> what? Whose idea was this, and how did they not get fired? Oh boy, this is gonna be fun. This is gonna be very fun. But you know, it's gonna give Americans a very hard lesson in economics that'll probably result in something useful Uh, capitalism, real capitalism. So we don't have single groups of people controlling the supply of any one thing, you have competition. That's where I think this is headed. It's a very complex series of things that I've observed. Uh, which lead me to that conclusion, that and the MAGA Republicans in Congress doing things that I really like. So when you combine the, who the people in power are, you know, the ones that are on the upswing, not the downswing, that is the MAGA Republicans. And the policy that they're putting forward, I believe we're heading towards a market revolution in the United States. We're going to go back to capitalism, maybe, And then we'll all live better and it'll be very interesting to see what people have to say about that, especially, particularly the socialists. But we have that, another oil production cut, that we would be thanking them for if we were still producing oil, if we were still self-sufficient, but we're not, and so we have to roll over. We have Jordan's foreign minister, <laughs> Aman Safadi, calling for investment into Syrian infrastructure, primarily in order to speed up the return of Syrian refugees back to their country. So he's like, Hey guys, let's let's throw your money into Syria and rebuild rebuild Syria uh, because we want to get these we want to get these people the hell out of here. But it also tells you uh, in a sort of subtle way that yes, the Syrian civil war is over. The fact that we're even they're even having conversations about reinvesting into the rebuilding of Syria—that's post-war talk. We're going to rebuild. You you don't talk about that while you're in the middle of the war. Sure, you might do it to a handful of places, like Russia did with uh, Mariupol. But in terms of foreign countries, talking about reinvesting, about investing into the rebuilding and the reconstruction of a country, you don't do that until after the destruction is completed. So in a way, this this, uh, foreign minister from Jordan, has told us in sort of a definitive terms, cause money talks, the Syrian civil war is over and it's time to begin rebuilding. It's time to start investing in the reconstruction of this very large player in the Middle East, Syria. And it's a beautiful thing. So there's that. Uh, the Wagner group following their mutiny that lasted for about a uh, 24 to 48 hours uh, depending on when you count the start and end, Wagner has been redeployed to Belarus, or at least the troops have been given the choice. They could, they were allowed to either follow Prigozhin to Belarus, and some of them did, a good number of them did, and others were formally integrated into the Russian military. So the Wagner force is s- smaller today than it was, say, during the Battle of Bakhmut. But now it's been exiled with Prigozhin. The remainder of it has been exiled with Prigozhin, and the rest has either been discharged from military service, or they, the non-mutineers—that is, the non-mutineers—have been allowed to be integrated into other military units. So, uh, a very complex but interesting situation going on there. Now, how long this? um arrangements going to be able to last? I'm not entirely sure because, uh, as we've covered on this podcast, the union state between Russia and Belarus has really been accelerated by this war. And I don't see, if I, if I have to give a, pr- a prediction, if I absolutely have to give a prediction, I don't see Russia getting to 2030 without at some point between now and 2030 formally reunifying with Belarus. Which then brings up the legal issue of having mercenaries on Russian soil, which is what the Wagner organization is. And that question of Wagner being uh, semi-independent or under the Russian Ministry of Defense will be raised again, which is the thing that sort of sparked all of this, combined with Prigozhin's paranoia about being uh, outmaneuvered at the highest levels and betrayed by uh, not Sergei Lavrov, I almost said, but sergey Shoigu, and the other ministers in the russian high command the thing that led him to rebel was the issue of wagner's operations and their superiors because he did not like Shoigu at all so when he was confronted with hey you cannot be operating in russia unless you're under the ministry of defense and the person he hates the most just so happens to be leading the ministry of defense there was a mutiny now, perhaps with Prigozhin out of power, we won't, they won't have that issue again when the issue inevitably comes back up, because I do believe there will be a formal reunification between Russia and Belarus. As I also believe Russia is going to annex vast swaths of Ukraine, perhaps 70-80%, to 80%, if not all. Now, Putin doesn't want uh, the far western pieces of Ukraine, uh, Ruthania and Carpathia. He doesn't want those he thinks he thinks galicia and those are the three parts that used to be a part of austria-hungary and poland during a period of time he doesn't want those he thinks that's a poison pill in fact russian officials back in the 19th century thought there was a poison pill he doesn't want those so it's likely that he'll exclude those from whatever peace deal he has with ukraine when this is over but i still think that this war is going to result especially due with the mass exodus of Ukrainians that happened at the beginning of the war. The official number is like eight to 10. Other people are putting it at 10 to 12. But when the Russian military goes on on the move again, you're going to see another exodus wave. I think we're going to see another one. This time it'll be people walking across the border to Poland instead of driving and taking flights. And that's going to be at least another one to two million people. So who's going to be left to oppose Russian rule? Nobody, especially in the especially in the central parts of Ukraine, you know, west of the Dnieper that otherwise would have been anti-Russian, you know, ethnically Ukrainian, they're going to be gone. Which leaves what? Empty land for the Russians to occupy. So I do believe that when the war is over and sometime then after Russia will not only have control over vast, basically all of Ukraine, but then once you annex Belarus, where's Wagner going to go? Now, the Duran says it's going to go to Africa, which is probably likely, but they can't stay in Russia. So we'll we'll see what becomes of this, because uh, they can't stay in Belarus forever, especially if Belarus becomes one with Russia. We have Iran set to becoming a full member of the SCO tomorrow uh, on our Independence Day. So big things happening on Independence Day. So we have that. We have Biden going to go visit the UK, where he will meet with King Charles III, and he will meet with the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. What will come of this? Uh, who knows? You know. Uh, I find it very interesting. And this is another critique I have of modern diplomacy, where we only talk to the countries we like, and then nothing gets accomplished, because the countries you like aren't exactly doing much. What have the western countries been up to and what issues are we resolving i don't see them Yo, climate change that that's that's at the top of the list but climate change isn't something you're going to stop as a matter of fact it's a natural feature of the earth so why would you stop it and now we have information coming out that climate change get get this helps plants grow but yeah, me being uh, Captain Obvious aside, uh, a more interesting piece of information is that the higher levels of carbon in the atmosphere, the more efficient photosynthesis is, meaning it takes less water to grow food. So arid regions of the world, not just the, the colder regions where we expect global warming is going to raise the temperatures by half a degree and then Canada is suddenly become, going to become the new breadbasket of North America well, okay, but (laughs) if there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, photosynthesis is more efficient, meaning more plants can grow as a result of there being more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then the things that they do by way of photosynthesis are more efficient because there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And with more plants, there's more oxygen too, so it's good for us. But we're talking about trends that are going to lead to another agricultural revolution uh in arid regions of the world and that's before you get into hydroponic farming where you grow food on the water or heck even you grow food below the water how's that we're gonna have an agricultural revolution we're going to have it like no matter which way you look even climate change is going to make that a possibility so why would we fight this I mean, you have people in Arabia talking about greening the desert. Why don't we do that? We have a desert. Let's green New Mexico. Let's green uh, Arizona. Let's green Nevada. Let's do it. Let's open up more areas of our country to human habitation and food production so that you can support larger populations like And it's just another level where we're told to be afraid of something that actually ends up helping us, and who would have thought that it was climate change, of all things? Who would have thought? You have people think avoiding having kids over this thing, and yet it might actually make living easier, because it's getting warmer and there's more carbon dioxide. We should be cheering on the power plants. But I'll digress. We have the Sudanese army now calling for the enlistment of all fighting age men into the military as conflict between the army under Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and the rapid support forces, the militias, under Mohammed Hamdan de Gallo continues with 3,000 confirmed dead and some estimates say that it's even as high as 5,000 just within one city all while two and a half million people within the country have been displaced. And at this point, point, I think it's safe to say that, yes, Sudan is in fact in a civil war. Because the fighting's gone on for long enough. No side appears to be winning in any conclusive manner or in any decisive way. And the rebels, the militias control at least half the country. And there's savage fighting over the capital region. Meaning that the government forces haven't even secured their own base. So they're on the back foot right now. The militias uh, have the upper hand for the time being. We'll see what happens, because the military does have the air force on their side, and they've been conducting airstrikes. So, But I think it's safe to say Sudan is, in fact, in a civil war. So now, now uh, we see if the conflict spills over. Because I was afraid that the Ethiopian Civil War would spill over. And I was afraid something was going to happen to the Renaissance Dam. I thought that Egypt might get desperate and do something funny <laughs> with the dam. Now, thankfully, nothing happened. And I was wrong on that. But with this, inst- but to go from one civil war to an- the next, I mean, what what's next? You went from Ethiopia Civil War to the Sudanese Civil War, a second one. Because let's not forget that South Sudan is over there. Do the South Sudanese intervene and take back all of Sudan for themselves? And now it's just Sudan. Do the Egyptians step in? Because the fighting just so happens to start killing Egyptians. Egypt does have a large military, and they've been buying military equipment like crazy. Modern equipment as well. Do they step in? Do they become the peacekeeping force of the Upper Nile, securing their water supply? Who knows? Like, we don't think about it, but this is the multipolar world. That's a po- In the multipolar world, that's a possibility. Now, I don't think that they will. I, th- I think that they'll exhaust other options first, but it's a possibility. So we'll keep our eyes on Sudan. We have uh, the Supreme Court in the United States overturning race-based college admissions. The decision uh, largely took aim at Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill Uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, saying that their programs lacked clear objectives for how they were using race in a meaningful or constitutional manner. The court said that these programs used racial stereotyping and discriminated against other races. And quite honestly, this decision is likely to be used against other affirmative action policies because now it's it's the precedent that has been set. They've effectively overturned affirmative action. And it's going to be used in other against other affirmative action policies like uh, job hirings, for example. So we'll observe the outcome of this. But interestingly enough, and I know I don't usually cover polls here, but a vast, surprisingly vast majority of Americans support this, and and it's nearly 50-50 among the Black community. Like 47 to 53. 53 in favor of, of affirmative action, and 47 in favor of getting rid of it. Now that, was unexpected. But again, just goes to show that America isn't nearly as divided as people like to believe it is. Certainly not Americans. And lastly, and this will become uh, more relevant when we get into our later topic, we have China updating its counter espionage law. The updated iteration of this counter espionage law counts data transfers leaving the country as potential security threats, and it's at the discretion of the Chinese government to determine if it is or isn't. And this makes businesses, media outlets, and researchers potentially liable for punishment under this law by the Chinese government. Uh, So we'll, again, observe and see what comes out of this. But we'll come back to this when we get into the meat of this episode. And speaking of the meat of this episode, we will get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. Now, we have... Dmitry Medvedev, and there's sort of two parts to this, but we have Dmitry Medvedev, the deputy head of the Russian Security Council, saying that conflict with the West could last for decades. He says, quote, our goal is simple, to eliminate the threat of Ukraine's membership in NATO, and we will achieve it one way or another. End quote. He also says that given NATO's rule about not admitting countries entangled in territorial conflicts, he also said that Ukraine could become, uh, that the war with Ukraine could become permanent. Uh, so ex, uh, he would, he says that it's a possibility that Russia ends up exploiting that um, habit of NATO to not include members who have border disputes and essentially just keeping the war going uh perpetually so that ukraine can never enter nato and perhaps um uh it'll go a very different way than what is being imagined i say perhaps but i'm fairly certain that it's not going to go the way that people are imagining because when people today imagine a freeze to the conflict and uh, that's the new favorite word we're going to freeze the conflict they imagine that we're going to keep the borders where they are right now where russia has the lamberts to crimea And they own the south, almost the entirety of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline. And then Ukraine keeps the rest, you know. That's how they think that this conflict is going to be frozen. That is not how this is going to be frozen, unless Ukraine sues for peace today. It's not. And nobody in the United States or in Europe is going to force them to. So what's going to end up happening instead is Russia is going to push westwards now there's a lot of pressure being put on putin by the military and by the hawks who want to wrap this up and by the russian citizenry quite frankly they they're ready they they want to see the fireworks so to speak but what's more likely to happen at least in the initial stages of the russian backbreaker offensive which is what i'm calling it and it will break ukraine's back is that they're going to move slowly and methodically, and you're going to see Russia grinding Ukraine from multiple axes. A few weeks ago, the Russians, P- Putin specifically said that they will open up a new axis of attack in Ukraine. Now, that could be up towards Kiev. That could be over uh, on the border with Poland, You know where Ukraine's border meets Poland. And they could send in a force from Belarus that comes in from there. It could just be a force that comes in from Belograd to attack Kharkov. And essentially threatening the flank of the Ukrainian military in a way that prevents them from doing more of those commando raids into Belgorod like they did again about a month ago and where they sent in like 70 dudes and lost half the force in a day and a whole bunch of military equipment. This was right before the counteroffensive began. So it's more likely that they'll do that and just slowly grind their way through Ukraine, just like how they did in Bakhmut, or actually really around Bakhmut, because when you saw the map of Bakhmut, you see that the front line went past the city and that there was this narrow corridor going into Bakhmut where the Russians could just hit you with artillery with impunity and there was nothing you could do about it. You just, you had to take the, figuratively and literally, you had to bite the bullet uh, if you wanted to get in or out of the city. It's more likely that we're going to see an offensive like that, just that the Ukrainians are going to be increasingly incapable of doing anything about it, especially if the Russians start opening up new front lines. Because up till now, the war hasn't been very active in the North. And we saw why the Russians pulled out as a part of that draft treaty that the Ukrainian delegation initialed, that they said uh, say that they signed on to, and then walked away from. And that's that will be perhaps the biggest diplomatic blow to the Ukrainians that we have yet seen. We'll see if they manage to fall further. But... The Russians are likely to move in very slowly, and very methodically. But up until now, uh, uh, we haven't seen any action in the north of Ukraine. We've barely seen much action in the east. We've seen the Donbass, but nothing to the north of Kharkov. Like what we saw when the war began, when the Russians really came in from j- essentially every angle that they bordered Ukraine from. The Russians have the manpower to do that again. Yeah, they, well in a more effective manner. They did it before. There's just that it was very swift and there was very little resistance at first, so it looked like they controlled more area than they really did and more area certainly than they were effectively capable of holding onto, which is why they fell back. But the fact that they chose to leave the north and we can now confirm that this was a withdrawal as per that treaty rather than some great Ukrainian counter effective uh strengthens my point that I made early on in the war, which is that where the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians can't force them out. Which is now, again, being proven not just by that draft treaty where the Russians chose to leave as per the treaty. But now with the counteroffensive, offensive we're, we're in what week, what, four? And there's no talk of the offensive. There's no talk of the offensive. We're, we're talking about a pause in the offensive. That, that's, that was the word on the street last week. And now there's no word to be had now. There's just one distraction from the next so that we don't look at the fact that the Ukrainians have failed miserably and that they've lost uh, thirteen to 15,000 men. And that's from the Russians intercepting Ukrainian communications. So where the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians can't force them out. But when the Russians choose to move, the Ukrainians have a difficult time if they're being pressed from multiple angles. And the Russians have plenty of manpower to press them from a lot of different angles. When this conflict gets frozen, if it gets frozen, and I think it might, as per these statements from uh, Medvedev, it's not going to be frozen at the current border. I don't even think it'll be frozen at the Dnieper. I think it's going to be frozen someplace, uh, at some line along the western border border. Of Ukraine. Well, not the western border, but in the west of Ukraine, you know. Somewhere between Lviv and Kiev is where the the new border is going to stabilize at, probably along some river, some nice, comfortable, physical barrier that can very clearly and very cleanly demarcate where Ukraine ends and where Russia begins, you know. Ukraine will be a rump state in uh, an even greater capacity than people imagine if Russia just takes the Black Sea coastline which makes Ukraine landlocked. No, I think Ukraine is actually going to shrink from being the size of Texas to being, well, the size of Hungary, basically. Uh, a little larger, perhaps. And then that new frontier is going to be where the Russians sit and just shell Ukraine forever, so they can maintain the, the, the new status quo of, oh, we're not not we're not at peace we're in war and you have a border dispute we claim the rest of the territory that you own because that used to be a part of the soviet union and we are the successor state to the soviet union as a matter of fact that used to belong to the russian empire but we're not going to take it so we're just going to have this permanent conflict of borders this permanent border dispute and there's nothing you can do about it and essentially it'll be retribution On the part of the Russians for what Ukraine did to the Donbass for eight years, where they sat there and shelled them permanently for eight years while pretending to make peace. The Russians might return the favor as a part of this strategy of denying Ukraine the ability to join NATO by preserving a a status of border conflict on Ukraine's new frontier, which will be someplace between Lviv and Kiev. It's not going to be the current frontier. Now, why I'm the only one saying that, I can't tell you. I really can't. I guess people still underestimate Russia and have yet to reconcile with the fact that Russia never stopped being a great power. They stopped being a superpower, but never a great power. They've always been a great power since they became one in what, the the 1700s, 1600s? So yeah, that's where this is going to freeze. And i think it's very interesting that medvedev brings up the possibility of freezing the conflict because before i said the conflict's not going to get frozen but now that he's saying freeze the conflict i'm like okay well how in what way does freezing the conflict benefit russia oh they don't want the western parts of ukraine but they also don't want ukraine to become part of nato so if you don't want to fully annex all of ukraine but you also don't want the weakened and very, very much smaller state of Ukraine that's going to be left when this is over. You don't want them to join NATO. Well, you take what you want—the seventy uh, to eighty percent—and then you stay in a permanent state of conflict with the other twenty to thirty percent of Ukraine. You know, territory-wise, not necessarily population-wise. And now Ukraine is weak. They're a rump state. You have all the Russian speakers. You have all this very fertile land and resources. You have the entire Black Sea coast. The entire northern half of the Black Sea is now uh, essentially a Russian lake. And you have all the Dnieper. You have the entire Dnieper River Valley. All right. So that's great for you. That's great for Russia. That's great for Belarus. You have more lands to settle. You have more people because you've annexed uh, essentially two-thirds to 80% of Ukraine. And now you're larger, you're stronger, you have, you've now protected all the Russians, the ethnic Russians, and Russia considers Ukrainians ethnic Russians as well. But now you also exclude the undesirables in the far west of Ukraine who are the most hostile demographic in Ukraine to Russia. And then you stay in a permanent state of conflict so that those people who are hostile to you cannot join NATO, or unless NATO changes its policy. In which case you're already in a state of war so you can just sweep one and destroy them in an instant and there's nothing NATO can do about. it. They won't be fast enough. And I think that that's what we'd really be looking at if the conflict did freeze. The Russians are not going to freeze it where the border stands because that leaves too many questions unresolved. Too many security issues for the Russians would be left unresolved if they froze the conflict where the border stands. They're going to push west they're going to push west. And I think that if a freeze is in the works, it's going to be something along the lines of what I've just described to you. Especially now that you have someone like Medvedev talking about a potential freeze in the context of we don't really want to annex the western parts of Ukraine. So that's something to look out for, it's something to look out for. So it's a sort of walk back from the total annexation of Ukraine. But it does leave open the possibility at some later point, if Ukraine does try to join NATO, of just annexing them immediately, because there won't be much left to annex, Russia will have taken everything else. It'd be like, it'd be like America swooping in to annex Kentucky. (laughs) Well, there isn't too much left to annex there, buddy. So, and that's not me knocking Kentucky, I'm just saying, compared to the size of the broader United States. Well, you could do that very quickly. Especially with an enlarged military force of, say, I don't know, one and a half million men, or in Russia's case, one point seven, almost one point eight million men. So there's that. Uh, uh, but that's not all that Medvedev said. Uh, when he said that his goal was to eliminate the threat of Ukraine as a mem- the, eliminate the threat of Ukraine joining NATO, and essentially to r- reduce the threat of NATO stepping in by maintaining a permanent state of war between Russia and Ukraine. But he also continued by saying that the confrontation will be very long. He says, uh, uh, let me see this. Let me see this. I think I skipped a piece. He said the confrontation will be, will be very long. Although another piece of this might conflict that it's not from him. It's from uh, the American side of this. But he said, given NATO's rule about not admitting countries entangled in territorial conflicts, he says the war with Ukraine could become permanent. And given its existential nature for Moscow, and this is the continuation of what he said, given its existential nature for Moscow, the only way to de-escalate tensions between Russia and the West was to enter into tough negotiations. And he's talking about peace negotiations, not just between Russia and Ukraine, but negotiations about European security, because before the war, and this is something Scott Ritter has been harping on since the beginning, before the war, Russia put out those series of proposals for a new European security framework, essentially pushing back NATO military infrastructure back to Germany, instead of having them in Eastern Europe, and yeah, including Russia's security concerns in the broader picture of European security, because Russia is A European nation and that just goes to show how unstable this whole purpose of NATO is the the keep the Russians keep the Germans down keep the Russians out and keep the Americans in it's unstable Russia is a European country they're the largest European state in size and population and they're always going to be there they're the most powerful European state Germany is the second most powerful and most populous European state after Russia They're already dominant economically and financially. You can't keep them down forever. They're dominant politically as well because it's the Germans who run the EU and the Germans who run Germany and Germany's economy really dictates the flow of the EU. You can't keep them down forever. They live there and they're a major player. And at the end of the day, America's is not. America is not a European country. I I really don't know what to tell you. Look at a map. You can't keep America in forever. It's unstable. It's how we lasted this long is a mystery. But the idea that it's going to last forever is asinine, in my view, especially observing what we're witnessing today, these massive once-in-a-century changes that are going on. But... He says, uh, uh, but again, going back to that de-escalation thing, it's not just between Russia and Ukraine, it's between Russia and the West. There needs to be a new European security framework, preferably one that doesn't include the United States. But uh, hey, but he's right. We can't continue. the, the, The Cold War order doesn't work anymore. Where it's the West versus the East, NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, the Warsaw Pact doesn't exist anymore. The Soviet Union is gone. NATO can't keep expanding to further east because now you're at Russia's door, and Russia's door got rolled back by thousands of miles. Well, not thousands, but a thousand miles. They used to be in East Germany. Halfway through Germany was the was the Russian frontier. Now that the Russians don't even have Ukraine, they just barely have Belarus, but of the Union State, but hundreds of miles the Russian frontier got rolled back and NATO still found their way to Russia's door. Something's not right. This You can't go on this way. There has to be something new. There has to be a, a concert of Europe again. Now, whether or not the Europeans will have the maturity to deal with that, the French might at some point maybe possibly come around to that, although I think it's really gonna be Hungary. I think it's gonna be Hungary. The second Hungary has a border with Russia, you're going to be you're going to see them switch up so unbelievably fast it'll make your head spin cuz then once they have a land border with Russia they can they can join the BRICS they can join the SCO they can join the Belt and Road and they can do all these things that they can't do because they're landlocked not just physically but politically they're covered on all sides by NATO nations and then Ukraine but Ukraine might be their way out might it depends on what the russians do uh if you if russia takes all of ukraine hungary has an out if they don't well hungary is going to be stuck but again that also depends on how ukraine behaves cuz it's very possible that west ukraine might get tired of war with russia and they might switch up and they 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 still won't like russia but they'll see that fighting a war with russia will only lead to their annihilation and they'll eventually concede to a sort of subservience to Russia. And that's going to happen. They could have had neutrality, but the way this is going to end, it's probably going to be subservience to Russia. And if Ukraine becomes essentially a, a client state of the Russians, well, then that leaves a land corridor between Russia and Hungary that Hungary can exploit. Now, will Italy come on side? Perhaps. They don't really have much skin in the game other than sentiments. All it would take is another leader who really doesn't care about Eastern Europe, and the Italians will switch up very quickly. So then, what does Britain and France do? France teeters on going to the the multipolar world order and staying in the liberal world order. At some point, they're going to teeter far enough to the other side to actually do something useful. And the British, at some point, might maybe possibly remember that they left the EU and actually engage with the rest of the world. So it's a possibility. It's a a new European security framework, a new concert of Europe. It's a possibility. It's just probably going to have to be an issue that is forced by catastrophic defeat in this war. Defeat on the part of NATO, not Russia. So we will see. We will see. Uh, But Medvedev says that this confrontation will be very long, and it's too late to tame the recalcitrants. And he's talking about NATO and the U.S. So he's saying that they need to be defeated. And by they, he means us. (laughs) Uh, And if you see the position rushes in, you'll know why. But he Essentially, he has come to the same decision that Putin did back in December when Putin did that remilitarization, that second mobilization wave that back in December, uh, when Russia called up half a million men, and these are remilitarized. this is a remilitarization. So these, that half a million is likely going to stay in the Russian army, even after the war in Ukraine is over. So at a bare minimum, you're looking at a Russian military force of around 1.2 to 1.3 million men when the war is over, that's their new peacetime force. So, Putin's come to this decision. Medvedev is now openly talking about this decision, this decision that confrontation with the West is unavoidable and that it's going to be a long, drawn-out affair for which Russia needs to prepare. And so they are. Not just with the the troops, but with their economy. They've retooled their economy, their trade, away from the West and towards the East, towards the Middle East, towards Africa. And now they're they're gearing up for a prolonged military confront conflict and confrontation with the West, uh, in terms of a Cold War style. But I don't think it's going to go the way the same. Uh, the, I don't think it's going to go the same way as the last Cold War did. I don't think it will, and uh, largely because we don't have the same restraint that we did during the Cold War. The Russians do. In fact, they have even more restraint and patience than they did during the Cold War. It's us. We've gone off the deep end, and we think fighting a war with Russia and China at the same time is a good idea. Uh, and I say that with great confidence, not just after having observed the actions of my government over these past well, year, over the past year and a half, and for a few years before that, when I was really getting. Into the into the the trenches with geopolitics, and this is going before I even started my podcast, where I went from being a hobby to uh, a, a full time obsession. <laughs> yeah. But just not just going off the, the actions and the statements of my government for the past five to six to ten years, but looking at them now, it's it's astonishing where we've gotten to, because. Uh, I really don't even know what to say. So I'll just read to you what these two light bulbs had to say about the situation in Ukraine. People like Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal. These two U.S. senators warned that if Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon or damages a nuclear power plant, there, there will be war with NATO. They actually said this. Uh, If you don't believe me, I will quote them verbatim. Senator Graham said, quote, Senator Blumenthal and I, Lindsey Graham, want to put everybody in this body, in this Congress, on notice that the threat of a use of a nuclear device by Russia is real, and the best way to deter it is to give them clarity, the Russians, as to what happens if they do that. They will be in a war with NATO. That's what Lindsey Graham said out of his own mouth. That if Russia uses a nuclear device, then there will be war with NATO. Russia will be at war with NATO. Even though Ukraine is not a a NATO member. Senator Blumenthal then chipped in and found a way to make Lindsey Graham sound like the reasonable one in the room. Because Because what Blumenthal had to say was even worse. He said, quote, Poland is at immediate risk if the use of tactical nuclear weapons or destruction of a nuclear power plant causes radiation to spread as almost certainly it would, causing significant human harm. This is not a kind of reckless or panicky resolution. It is based on fact and science. And it is meant to send a message to Vladimir Putin and even more directly to his military. They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated if they use tactical nuclear weapons or if they destroy a nuclear power plant in a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations. Article 5 is there for a reason. End quote. Uh, uh, okay, so the Russians, uh, I just read to you what they think, they think this is going to be a long-term standoff, but if these two freak freak shows in our Senate have their way, we'll all be dead in 24 hours, so the Russians are, uh, they don't have anything to worry about, they don't need to prepare for a long-term standoff, they just need to sharpen the spears of their nuclear uh, annihilation weapons. I say nuclear deterrent, but we're not all that deterred, now are we? yeah this is terrible these people will actually get us killed and my line of thinking is this and i uh, i hope you caught that when he was talking about the conditions when he said if russia used a a nuke or if they attacked a nuclear power plant remember that because and my line of thinking when i say that these people are going to get us into war and they're going to get us killed in 24 hours flat My line of thinking is this, we know Ukraine is a a nuclear terrorist state on the grounds that they have attacked multiple nuclear facilities, ranging from power plants in Chernobyl and Kherson, nuclear power plants, and most notably the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which they are still attacking to this day, and blaming on the Russians, of course, as well as the attacks on a Russian airbase, the Engels airbase, which was known to house numerous nuclear warheads and we won't even get into the attempted decapitation strikes in the kremlin which possibly could have set off the dead hand system which would have killed everybody on the planet just by the automated response going off and then launching the all of russia's nukes at all of russia's targets they could have actually killed everybody with their attacks on the Kremlin. So given that they are an established an established nuclear terrorist state, and given that we also know that the propaganda press has an established pattern of behavior that results in them lying in such a way that they blame Russia for things that Ukraine does. And my examples on that is those missiles that landed in Poland, killing two Polish farmers last year, which were actually Ukrainian missiles. Uh, the attacks on Chernobyl and Zaporizhia power plants. Chernobyl happened when the war began, which is why a lot of people don't really talk about them. But they do talk about the attacks on the Zaporizhia power plant. And the partial destruction of the Novaya Kokovka Dam. All Ukrainian actions, which are blamed on Russia by the propaganda press. So when you pair that... The established patterns of behavior of Ukraine as a nuclear terrorist state, the patterns of behavior of the propaganda press in lying on the, for Ukraine and blaming what Ukraine does on Russia, when you pair that with this overt willingness of Western nations, particularly the U.S. and the U.K., toward giving Ukraine weapons that they really shouldn't have like depleted uranium shells and bullets, then what you get is not a deterrent. These statements that Graham and Blumenthal made, this is not a deterrent. What it is instead is a direct pathway for a direct military intervention in Ukraine by the U.S. and NATO. Because if, again, going back, what did he say? What did Blumenthal say? He said, quote, if a tactical nuclear weapon is used or, in this case, more relevantly, if a nuclear power plant is destroyed in, again, quote, a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations, end quote, and you can define that threat however you want, then there will be war with NATO. He said that. He said that Article 5 is there for a reason. He is openly saying, you know, I, I think I fucked up the quote, uh, even though I have it written down. But he is saying that if uh, something happens to the power plant, or if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, that they're going to call NATO in on this. He said it. He said that this is meant to be uh, a threat He said that it's meant to send a message to Putin, but more directly to his military. They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated if they use tactical nuclear weapons or if they destroy a nuclear power plant in a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations. Article 5 is there for a reason. That is his words. So if you combine that statement a tactical nuke, or if they attack a nuclear power plant in a way that damages or threatens surrounding NATO nations, if you combine that with the fact that Ukraine is actively attacking a nuclear power plant right now, and the fact that the propaganda press lies for Ukraine and blames Ukraine's actions on Russia, he has actually not threatened anything other than a direct intervention of NATO into the war. In fact, he's not even threatening it. He's saying that it's going to happen. Because what do you think happens at at a certain point? The Ukrainians are going to do some critical damage to this power plant unless the Russians can push them far enough away to where they can't hit it anymore. And we don't know when that's going to happen. They can do it if they chose to, but we don't know when. The Russians are content with defense right now. We, It's... That is... I'm tripping over my words. Because what am I supposed to say to that? They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated. You are threatening to use... You are threatening to destroy Russian military formations. That is war. That is war. Article 5 is there for a reason that he is literally calling for war. And if Ukraine is attacking the power plant... The media, the propaganda press, says that Russia is the one attacking the power plant that is currently under Russian occupation. And then he says, oh, if Russia attacks the power plant, then uh, NATO can get involved. Then he's saying that NATO is going to get involved. You can see the clear chain of events that's going to come, that's going to transpire, leading up to a direct intervention of NATO into this war. That, that's what he's just told us. He's just told us, hey, we're going to intervene. We're going to intervene. We're going to take Ukraine attacking this power plant. We're going to blame it on you. And then we're going to use the, the damage from the destroyed or the partially destroyed power plant that Ukraine caused, but that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be blamed on you. So we're going to say that you did it. And then we're going to use that as justification for Article 5. And get all of NATO involved. It's what is if for those who don't know article 5 of nato is the collective defense clause where an attack on one state is treated as an attack on all states meaning he if if what he's really just told us is that if there just so happens to be a major attack or sabotage of a power plant in say i don't know Zaporizhia, which is conveniently blamed on the russians of course Then NATO can say that this threatens its eastern member states, like Poland, Hungary, or Romania. And then said eastern states can call on Article 5, the Collective Defense Clause, to bring the entire alliance into a direct shooting war with Russia. This is the insanity that has been looming over this conflict since day one. The prospect of a NATO intervention in Ukraine. This is it. We are on the verge of an actual shooting war between Russia and NATO. Now, I am on record saying that I don't think this is going to go very well for the NATO forces, uh, especially with how much we've depleted our forces in Ukraine, uh, our stocks of ammunition, that is, and given how well the Ukrainians have performed against Russia. The Ukrainians are sort of a a stand-in for NATO, And the Ukrainians weren't doing that well even when they had a numerical superiority, even when the Russian Air Force was nowhere to be found because Ukrainian air defenses were thick. Ukraine has been constantly at a disadvantage in terms of the casualty ratio. I think the casualty ratio will be at least a little bit better with NATO involved because, you know, everyone will be using equipment that they're actually familiar with instead of having to learn on the fly. How to use equipment that they've never used before but if russia can manhandle ukraine while outnumbered because they were outnumbered when the war began if russia can manhandle ukraine while outnumbered and now we can see that they are fully capable of annihilating western military equipment so this era of superiority that we went into this war with for whatever reason i don't know how that manifested because before it was we were equals and our equipment was equal and then it suddenly became, oh, our equipment, our high-end equipment is too top of the line, too top of the line for you. You, you can't handle this top-notch equipment. And then they have 20 destroyed Leopard 2s. <clears throat> Excuse me. This isn't going to go very well for NATO, especially now that we've invested so heavily in Ukraine. Like, a while back, I speculated, and some of you will remember this, my longtime listeners. Some of you will remember way back, and I think it was in like January or February, where I speculated on why Russia was taking its time with the conflict, and why they had mobilized as many men as they did, and, and primarily why they hadn't done an offensive of their own, because I was expecting the winter offensive back in sometime late November, early December, uh, maybe pr- by the end of December, oh, when the ground hardens. I was expecting the Russian winter offensive. I thought it was going to get lit (laughs) for uh, perhaps lack of a better term. And then it didn't happen. So then I had to sit and ask, okay, well, why didn't that happen? And among other things that I concluded, one being that they have more gain from prolonging the war because the longer the war goes on, more NATO equipment flows in and more NATO equipment flows in, the more NATO equipment you can destroy without actually fighting NATO. So, Among other things, I concluded that Russia was taking its time because they were preparing not for a war with Ukraine, but for a war with NATO. Because when you look at, because I I was looking at the numbers of men they mobilized, and I'm like, "Why, why did you mobilize all these men? There's no way you need a million men. To just jump Ukraine from all sides. That that seemed pretty contrary to the way the Russians had been running the war up till that point, especially with their emphasis on really not wanting to destroy Ukraine as a functional state and not wanting to cause civilian casualties, which you would do if, if you sent in a force that large and just started steamrolling everything in your path. So it seemed contrary to me that the Russians would mobilize a force of a million men just to fight the Ukrainians. And that's just from the people that are mobilized, because again, Russia had three quarters of a million in active duty before the war. So it seemed off to me that you would need a million men to do something that you're really capable of doing with like half that number, like the first mobilization in October probably could have got the job done. Even if all of them weren't necessarily combat troops, but more logistics, that would have been enough. That would that would have been enough but the extra half a million in December I'm like okay that's a bit overkill um because you were already at a million with the first mobilization wave now you're at a, a 1.6 million with the remilitarization in December now of course I wasn't taking into account that the December Eve, the December mobile mobilize had to train but the October ones, uh, they were training, of course, but a lot of them were reservists, and some of whom had already seen combat in the war before being, you know, rotated out of service. So they're reservists, not full-time active duty. So I'm like, okay, certainly those forces would have been enough. So where's the Russian offensive? But I concluded that the million plus men that had been mobilized, uh. Ultimately, they were not for Ukraine. They were mobilized preemptively in case of NATO doing something unbelievably stupid. You know, something like, I don't know, a direct intervention in Ukraine. If Russia waited, and this is my logic here, if Russia had waited until now to mobilize these men, now that NATO is saying and talking about direct intervention, it would have been too late. It would take too long to get these men combat ready. And then you'd essentially be sending inexperienced troops against NATO armies, which would put you into a grinding war with NATO that you'd be at a partial disadvantage with. Because then you'd be mobilizing at the same time they're mobilizing, meaning you can't really gain the advantage like you could if you were prepared for the war and they weren't because nato isn't mobilizing, we can't mobilize until after we get involved but russia's already involved I meaning they can mobilize they can call up a million men preemptively and they can train them for months on end specifically to fight the conflict that is being fought they can train these men to fight today's war not train them on how to fight yesterday's war or how to fight a bandit in afghanistan they can train them on modern tactics, uh, like the top of the line, the cutting edge, things that are actually relevant to this conflict, this the largest conflict fought since World War II, Unless you want to count the Chinese Civil war, but certainly the largest conflict in Europe since the Second World War. So I'm like, OK, they're not for Ukraine, they're for NATO. And this is in this is like a break glass in case of emergency type force, because eventually they're going to deploy some of them to help finish off Ukraine. But you don't need the other half a million for that. What are the, the, the half a million for that? Why were they mobilized? Why did Russia mil- remilitarize back in December? Because Putin was preparing for a long term standoff with the West. That was the reason behind the mobilization wave back in December. So, if you combine that with the fact that they've taken this very slowly, they're waiting, they were waiting for those troops in December that they mobilized in December to be combat ready. By this point, I'm sure that they are. I mean, they've had a good six months to train again for the conditions that exist in today's war, not yesterday's war, but actual modern conflict in the way that is being fought right now in Ukraine, meaning that the training that they're receiving is the most relevant training in the world right now in terms of the conflict that Russia is likely to fight. NATO has yet to adjust because NATO still believes that Russia's losing. So they're, we're learning nothing. while the Russians are learning everything. And other countries are probably going to follow okay suit. And now here we are, where NATO is actually openly speaking, of a direct intervention in Ukraine. Lindsey Graham and Blumenthal just laid out the exact pathway by which Ukraine can instigate an event to drive NATO into the war. All Ukraine has to do is sabotage a nuclear power plant somewhere in Russia's control, maybe even even a nuclear power plant under their own control, and just blame it on the Russians. Because Again, it's said A nuclear power plant, not necessarily the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. If the Ukrainians get desperate, they can blow up one of their own power plants somewhere deeper in Ukraine itself and then blame it on a Russian missile strike. The news isn't going to correct them. The news is going to say, oh, look, the Russians blew up this power plant. I guess now NATO, that endangers, look at how it endangers all these other NATO countries. NATO has to do something about the war in Russia. Oh, about the war in Ukraine, excuse me. NATO has to do something about Russia and Russian aggression. You you can already see it. They have laid out the path, not the off-ramp, but the on-ramp for NATO to get involved directly into the war. But this is what Russia was preparing for. For months, they've been preparing for this possibility. Because if Russia went in and crushed Ukraine, there was the possibility... that NATO jumps in as a sort of panic response to try to save something of Ukraine, and then they start getting blown up by Russian artillery, and now you have a direct shooting war between Russia and NATO. But if Russia has another half a million men on standby when that happens, well, then it doesn't really matter because you can just deploy them, and now all your bases are covered. Now everything's covered. You've already bribed Turkey. <laughs> away from the u.s sphere of influence i don't think turkey would join us in a war against russia turkey doesn't even have a a border with russia anyway not really so what does that leave it leaves finland the baltics poland hungary romania the baltics are going to get eaten alive The Baltics will be eaten alive. The Russians have half a million troops. The Finns are going to get eaten alive. The Russians have an army group up there that they've mobilized. It it, it really won't go well for NATO. We are not prepared to fight on a front that large, but the Russians have mobilized enough men to where they can. And that's before you count the Belarusian military, who will also be an active participant in the fighting, because it's Russia. It is one and the same with Russia, effectively. Russia's prepared to fight this war. We're not. So, the fact that these people, these incredibly irresponsible people, are talking about getting us in to that war is insane. It's insane. And it's not gonna go well for us because we've depleted so much of our crucial ammunition reserves because we gave it all, all the way to Ukraine. huh so much for Cold War 2.0 looks like we're all gonna we're gonna wake up at war with Russia one day and then we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens but we'll uh, we'll move on to our next subject which is Janet Yellen going to Beijing. Hello? Uh, why is she doing this? Uh, <laughs> I suppose we'll find out, but the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, will be traveling to Beijing between July 6th and July 9th for meetings with senior Chinese officials on a, a, a broad range of issues. And I'm reading this uh, article here. A broad range of issues, including U.S. concerns about a new Chinese counter-espionage law, Uh, a senior Treasury official said on Sundays. Yellen's long-anticipated trip... Shoot, I didn't hear about it. (laughs) I haven't heard about it. Yellen's long-anticipated trip. They say this as if this is normal for the U.S. Treasury Secretary to be going to foreign countries. Why is my question, but I, I, I suppose I'll reserve that until I get through this. Uh, Yellen's long-anticipated trip is part of a push by President Joe Biden to deepen communication between the world's two largest economies, stabilize the relationship, and minimize the risks of mistakes when disagreements arise. This, this same official told the reporters, the same one who said that uh, Janet Yellen was going to Beijing. Uh... That is a blatant lie because, <laughs> uh, and and this this article states it. It comes just weeks after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited Beijing and agreed with Chinese President Xi Jinping to stabilize ties and ensure the two countries' intense rivalry does not veer into conflict. And then China protested loudly when Biden subsequently referred to Xi as a dictator. Now, analysts say that that remark had little impact on efforts to improve ties, but we know the value of analysts in the modern day. So just that, just the fact, I'm surprised they included that in the article. Um, So this person, this senior official within the Treasury, supposedly, uh, yeah, the senior Treasury official says that Yellen's going to Beijing from from June 6th to June 9th, He's going to talk about a broad range of issues, including this Chinese counter-espionage law that we talked about early on in today's episode. And that this is part of a push by President Biden to deepen communications and stabilize the relationship. Except that man sabotaged all of Blinken's uh, rather minimal gains, mind you. But gains, nonetheless, that even I had to admit that he got by doing something useful for once in his life. Biden sabotaged that in less than 24 hours. Like imagine being Blinken and sitting there getting lectured by the Chinese for what three days straight in multi, in these long multi-hour sessions where he's literally just sitting there getting talked at. He's there there's not even really a conversation going on. Like he gets to speak uh, on a few occasions, but it's really just them talking down to this man. Like, look, you want this audience. Now here's what you're going to do. We are tired of this, 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 and this. And if you're serious, you'll prove it. And if you're not serious, we're not surprised. That man sat through hours upon hours of lecturing. I'm sure he hasn't been lectured like that since he was in college, (laughs) but he did all that. He finally did something useful, which was that he actually stated what the legal U.S. position is on China, on Taiwan, which is that we do not recognize Taiwan. I don't know what's so hard to understand about that. We don't we don't recognize them. We shouldn't be supporting independence. We shouldn't be doing that when our policy is the one China policy. Hello, uh, yeah, he did something useful. Biden sabotaged that in less than a day. Sabotaged in less than a day. So the idea that this is part of it. Uh, Biden's plan to deepen communications is a blatant lie, Uh, perhaps that this person just doesn't know that, and so it's just that they're uninformed. But it's it's crazy that we're now expecting something useful to come from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen going to Beijing. What's she going to accomplish? I couldn't tell you. And why is she going? the The Treasury Secretary, I also couldn't tell you. Um, and this is not just why is she going to China. Why is she going to other countries? This is not the Treasury Secretary's, you know, purview. Certainly not in an independent capacity. Sure, if if this was a delegation that Biden brought with him in some grand trip to China then okay, I could see the Treasury Secretary coming. I could see the Minister of Agriculture and the, and the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State. I could see all that. But in an independent capacity, no. This is not your purview. Stay where you are. This is Blinken's job, for better or worse. But I guess she's going to China. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, the... The Treasury Chief, Janet Yellen, plans to tell China's new economic team that Washington will continue to defend human rights. Okay, so she's going to accomplish literally nothing. (laughs) You you can tell just based off the the language used that literally nothing is going to come from this trip other than more disappointment. I don't even know if you can call it disappointment because I expect nothing. I don't know why the Treasury Secretary is going, but... Just judging off of that statement alone, I can tell you literally nothing of value is going to be talked about. And nothing useful is going to be gained from this. But she's going <laughs> Washington will continue to defend human rights and its own national security interests via targeted actions against China, but wants to work with Beijing on urgent challenges such as climate change and debt distress faced by many countries. Um. Okay. So again, (laughs) literally nothing of use is going to be talked about, literally nothing. You're going to defend human rights where? In China? You have no jurisdiction in China. And that's what a lot of these human rights advocates don't quite understand. Now, they, they take up the moral position that we have to defend human rights. Okay. How are you going to defend them in a country that doesn't let you in? It's one thing to just bomb some third world country and force yourself onto them you can't do that with china i don't i don't know i don't know what to tell you you can't enforce jack Diddley or squat in china so how are you going to enforce these human rights you're going to take selective actions targeted actions against china if that's your stance why are you going to china why are you even having this meeting it, it it's it boggles the mind how all these people think that they're they're doing something. They all think that they're doing something. They all think they're so uh, enlightened, but they're all equally dumb. And and they learn nothing from each other and each other's mistakes. That that staffer, that high level official actually thinks that Joe Biden has this initiative where he's trying to make amends with China, but he sabotaged that same initiative in less than 24 hours. It's, it's, I, I don't know. I really don't know what in tarnation is happening. Like you, you you want to defend human rights in a place that you have no jurisdiction. You want to defend your national security interest. I mean, that's that's okay, that's good, okay. But what does that have to do with China? Why are you going to bring? Why are you? You know what? You know, I'll just leave it there. It's a good thing you're going to you're going to bring that up. Okay, that's good. You, we we want to defend our national security interest. That's good. Okay. Okay. And, but you're going to do so via targeted actions against China. Okay, so then why are you going to talk to the Chinese? Why are you, why, what's the point of the meeting, if that's your stance? Um, but you want to work with Beijing on urgent challenges. Okay, such as climate change. Why? Why? The Russians are not, I don't know if you noticed, but the Russians are not going to give up hydrocarbons. They're not going to give up natural gas. They're not going to give up coal. They're not going to give up oil. So why would you even approach them with this that'd be like going to saudi arabia and saying hey we need you to stop producing oil altogether now you might have their attention with a production cut but an end of oil why would they want that why would why would they want that they make you you have any idea how much money they make off of oil they want to get away from being wholly dependent on this one resource sure and it's a good idea especially with nuclear fusion looming the, the, the Chinese are really pushing it in that uh, regard they're they're pushing boundaries but you want to end you want to end hydrocarbons you want you want to get rid of oil you want to get rid of coal you want to get rid of natural gas that's our entire economy I don't know if you know that I don't know if you've noticed but that's a really significant portion of the Russian economy why would, why would you do that Why would you do that? The Chinese are not going to give this up. They're not going to give up coal, oil, and natural gas, especially considering that they are not self sufficient in energy production. They have to import coal, they have to import oil, they have to import natural gas. Why would they go along with you on fighting climate change, especially in the misguided way that? People, like Yellen, believe in climate change. Which is that it's some disaster that needs to be averted. And the way you avert it is by destroying the standard of living of your people. By getting rid of the energy inputs that make industry and modern life possible. Why would the Chinese do that? They just industrialized after getting pooped on by industrialized powers for a century. Their century of humiliation. They just finished industrializing and they're still going. Why would they sacrifice that? because you're afraid of climate change now. like Really think about who you're talking to. Like, what is is your purpose? This whole thing boggles my mind. I'm I'm, I'm still going to push through here. I'm still going to push through. You want to talk about urgent challenges, such as climate change and debt distress faced by many countries. Again, what does that have to do with the United States? What does that have to do with the United States? Because the Chinese didn't just force the loans onto other people. Those other countries took the loans. They knew the risks. They knew what they were signing up to. They are sovereign entities. And they can make their own decisions. And they chose to take the Chinese loans. So what purview does the United States have in inserting ourselves into that equation? What are we Are we gonna go pay off their debts? We the most indebted nation in the on the face of the earth and in human history? are going to go helping other countries pay off their debts. That's nonsensical. That's nonsensical. So what is is the point here? The debt was incurred through a consensual transaction between those other countries and China, and we have no capacity to do anything about that debt that doesn't involve us doing something incredibly stupid, like paying for other people's debts while our debt goes up and up and up. What is the point of this trip? I I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But Yellen goes on to say, quote, we seek a healthy economic relationship with China, one that fosters growth and innovation in both countries. And and she continues by saying, we do not seek to decouple our economies. Uh, A full cessation of trade and investment will be destabilizing for both our economies and the global economy. And, and quote. And on that, she would be correct. I don't think the decoupling is quite gonna happen. Although I do believe the United States and China can uh disentangle by quite a bit. We can go quite a quite a ways. Now, completely, I don't think so. But if the United States industrialized, you would see one manufacturing giant and another manufacturing giant. Now, perhaps the industrialization of the United States would actually deepen economic and trade ties with China, but hey, we'd be industrializing and we'd be able to make our own stuff. So in that regard, it'd be a mutually beneficial arrangement to have that trade. But at the same time, the United States has a lot of its own raw materials. We have our own energy resources. The Chinese don't. We have uh, cheap transportation, although the Chinese do have high-speed rail but we can build that as well. It just would take time. But in time, the United States would be capable of self-sufficiency to a much larger degree than the Chinese would, because the Chinese depend on raw materials that come from outside of China, whereas the United States has a lot of those raw materials inside of the United States. So while the Chinese cannot necessarily go for an, uh, an, what is the word? What is the word? It's not an autocracy. Uh, autarky. The Chinese can't quite go for an autarky, but the Americans, we can come as close as you can get, especially for an economy of our size. We can get very close to an autarky, because an we have the resources. So once you have the manufacturing and the refining capacity within your own country, and you have the resources, and you have the market, because we have one of the largest commercial markets in the world, we can decouple on our own accord. So perhaps it's a possibility. But then again, mutually beneficial trade between China and the United States would probably deepen in terms of the sheer volume, perhaps as a percentage of the economy, it would shrink. But the sheer volume, if the United States industrialized, oh my god, you're talking the largest trade partnership in the world, in human history, really, so I think she's correct when she says that decoupling might not be in the best interest of the two countries. Although some degree of self-sufficiency is definitely in order for both us and China. That, that has to be built in. Otherwise, you create these very dangerous interdependencies that can lead to conflict. So some degree of self-sufficiency or capability for self-sufficiency should be in order for both China and the United States. The Chinese are already there. America, that's already our mentality. So once we get there, I think we'll be fine. I think we'll actually be really fine once we're there, and then we can focus purely on trade and making deals with the Chinese. So in this regard, I do believe she is correct, uh, where we want a good economic relationship with the Chinese. And by having that, you can foster growth and innovation in both countries just by having a, a working trade relationship, which is actually what Trump was working towards. He was working towards a deal with China, not towards some retarded war with China. Uh, that's uh, one of the overlooked aspects of China, of not Chinese, of Trump's foreign policy, was that it was in pursuit of. It was always in pursuit of a deal, always in pursuit of a deal, for better or for worse. It was a, a good fault to have, but he was always looking for. The deal. He wanted to negotiate his way out of every problem that we had. So when he comes when he comes back, we can we're probably looking at the biggest trade deal in human history <laughs> being worked out with the Chinese. But yeah, a full cessation of trade and investment would be destabilizing for both of our countries. She is right, and because America and China are the largest economies on the planet, uh, destabilizing both of our economies at the same time would destabilize the global economy. And she is also correct. Uh, so yeah, she's going to China, and that's that. What what she will accomplish, I don't know. She's said something correct when she talks about trade with China, but um, everything else seems to be rather counterproductive. So we'll really just have to wait and see on this one. I am not holding my breath for Janet Yellen's trip to China. But lastly, lastly, before we end today's episode, we're going to talk about that massive wave of unrest that took France by storm for nearly a week. It looks like it's, uh, well, I actually, I almost said it looked like it's calming down right now, but, uh, <laughs> i think it'd be a little premature to say that it's calming down right now given that there are still masses of people in the streets and it's it's a mess i'll say that one I'll, it's a mess but how did all this rioting and all this unrest in france come about well a teenager uh, nahel merzouk a 17 year old algerian or uh, a algerian male teen with a history of encounters with the police for other minor offenses and crimes, who was driving without a license when he was pulled over by the police, he was shot when he attempted to drive off while the police were, you know, had stopped him. And one of them was leaning onto his car. So I don't... Th- and there was a... a w- w- allegedly, there was audio of the police officer saying they're going to shoot him. This is before they, they actually ended up shooting him. This is before he drove off. And perhaps that was a part of some broader context. Maybe he got uh, aggressive um, and said something to the cop and then pissed off the cop. And then the cop said, I'll show you. We don't really know the full context. And it's it's one of those George Floyd moment type things where we get selective footage. And then the full body cam footage isn't going to come out until after the damage is done. Which might still happen with this. Although... The damage is certainly looking like it might end up being worse than what happened with Black Lives the Black Lives Matter riots of 2020. But he was shot as he attempted to drive off by the police and this event sparked nationwide riots in France, which eventually even spread to neighboring Belgium and I think Luxembourg as well. but certainly Belgium, and over a hundred people have been arrested in Belgium for riots. Now, Arnaud Bertrand, uh, this is a person on Twitter, he posted uh, a translation of a statement that was given by a French police union, and I thought that this was very, very interesting, so I brought this to you. Uh, It says, now that's enough. Facing these savage hordes, asking for calm is no longer enough. It must be imposed. And again, this is the French police union talking, or at least one of them restoring the Republican order and putting the apprehended beyond the capacity to harm should be the only political signals to give. In the face of such exactions, the police family, and they're again referring to the union, the police family must stand together. Our colleagues, like the many citizens, can no longer bear the tyranny of these violent minorities. The time is not for union action But for combat against these, quote unquote, pests, surrendering, capitulating and pleasing them by laying down arms are not the solutions in light of the gravity of the situation. All means must be put in place to restore the rule of law as quickly as possible. Once restored, we already know that we will relieve this mess that we will have been enduring for decades. For these reasons, Alliance Police Nationale, and I suppose that's the name of the union, and the UNSA police, so that's probably another union of the French police, will take their responsibilities and warn the government from now on, at the end, we will be in action and without concrete measures for the legal protection of the police, an appropriate penal response Significant means provided, the police will judge the extent of the consideration given. Today, the police are in combat because we are at war. Tomorrow, we will be in resistance, and the government will have to become aware of it. That's a lot. So let's sort of uh, break that down piece by piece, because I think... Uh, I think that's a a very big thing to go over before we move on to some of the other events of this major rioting, because this really catches the attention. Uh, One, they call this savage horde. So they're they're right off the, the gate. You see that they're taking a completely different stance toward these riots than, say, police in America did, where they started kneeling with the protesters and they say that asking for calm is no longer enough it must be imposed so you see a lot of militant language here and i suppose it is understandable given the long series of offenses and the the long series of the police having to put up with these riots that break out on the streets of france every few months or so because some group of migrants decide to get violent and they start blowing things up and setting things on fire Not that the French themselves don't do that, but it's one thing for your citizens to do it. It's another thing for an imported minority of people to do it. So facing these saboteurs is no longer enough. Uh, It must be imposed. Asking for calm is no longer enough. It must be imposed. Uh, They have to be apprehended. And in the face of this, the police family must stand together and they can no longer bear the tyranny of these violent minorities. So they are very clearly pinning the blame on the migrant population of france for these riots they're they're not they're not cherry they're not uh, uh beating around the bush they're going straight for the jugular here it's the tyranny of these violent minorities they are the savage hordes and you can't ask for calm you have to impose calm you have to impose law and order on these people specifically the time is not for union action, but for combat against these pests. Now, this is this is language you haven't heard from Europeans since the 1900s. As really, since the 1800s, if I'm being completely honest here. Uh, unless you want to look at Nazi Germany. But th- this is really tough language. Perhaps, now, again, I'm not making moral distinctions here it's completely understandable where they're coming from here but let's just really take a moment to note the language this is militant this is aggressive and this is a warning not to the the migrants but to the french government but to the french government these police say that we are at war the police are in combat because we are at war and tomorrow we will be in resistance and the government will have to become aware of it. It is very clearly a threat to the government that this whole letting the migrants do whatever they want and riot whenever they want and not punishing them not not having not backing us up when we restore order to this chaos that you have imported through your immigration policies. And then letting them go when they get arrested, that's not going to fly anymore we are at war we are at war that's what they're saying against these pests against this tyranny of the violent minorities and they say that all means must be put in place to restore the rule of law as quickly as possible why because the time is not for union action but for combat against these pests surrendering capitulating and pleasing them by laying down arms are not the solutions in light of the gravity of the situation. They they are very clearly at war. They say it themselves, they're at war. Once restored, we already know that we will relieve this mess that we have been enduring for decades. So they're saying that by putting the foot down right now, using all means, by any means necessary, restoring order and putting down this rebellion here, putting down this unrest, we will relieve the mess that we have been enduring for decades." Wow. Uh, I won't go as far as to say that France is in a civil war. But this does appear to be some sort of ethnic uprising among France's minority populations, primarily those from Algeria and the Middle East, North Africa in the Middle East. And this is a massive event. It's nationwide and it's spilled into Belgium. This is a, a very tedious situation, especially when you see language like that coming out of the, the police unions. Forty-five. I saw a number that 45,000 police were deployed to the streets to try to get the situation under control. So essentially a small army of people deployed to the streets. And it's not just the police, you have roving bands of French citizens essentially coming together to form neighborhood militias to stop the rioters from destroying their towns. You have people standing out in front of their cars to make sure that the rioters don't destroy them and burn them, because you see all these videos and these pictures of all these oh, dozens of burnt out cars and police cars and, and buses and trucks. People aren't trying to have their car get burned <laughs> by a molotov or or a a firework so you and it's it's interesting that that's happened because usually when these things happen it's oh we're they're they're so hurt we're we're gonna stand in solidarity and then the rioters just do whatever they want because they're a minority and they are oppressed but now the french are on the streets it's not just the police it's the french people they're on the streets not all of them not some massive majority of them but it is interesting to see they've formed these uh ad hoc militias to patrol and roam the streets as a sort of counter-revolutionary force it's a wild situation in france meanwhile macron (laughs) macron has been caught lacking uh we'll we'll just say that Uh, He's been caught lacking incredibly. Uh, when when these riots first broke out, he was there was a video of him dancing around in an Elton John concert. Uh, and then when he finally did address the situation, he barely addressed it at all. Essentially, essentially saying that both sides were in the wrong, even though one side started the rioting, and the other side came out in response to said rioting to defend their homes and their houses. And he made no hint that he was going to enforce the rule of law, but rather that every everyone should go home. Uh, well, not even that. Everyone should leave each other alone. It's yeah. Um, he's fading uh, again. I know I don't really talk about polls here, but his opposition Marine Le Pen, who lost to him in the election about a year ago is now rising in the polls, rising in the polls. And we'll see if something comes of that. Uh, but unless the French government, the ruling coalition just falls apart um, or he, or Macron loses in a vote of no confidence, then there's not going to be another election in France to get rid of that guy until like 2027. Cause they just had their presidential election literally a year ago in 2022 so it's possible it's possible that he could lose the vote of no confidence but that's a a wait and see thing because i don't know that he will i don't know that he will maybe he will maybe he won't i don't know what i do know is that france is burning while we while we look at what the politicians are doing to see if they're going to do anything at all the french and the french are taking up arms to defend themselves against the writing and if you allow that to go on for too long and i'm in i'm a constitutional man i do believe in the second amendment but i also believe that one of the particular roles of the government as someone who is not in favor of a large state of a large government One of the roles of the government is to maintain public order. That that is literally one of the few things that the government is actually supposed to be doing. And he is neglecting his responsibility. He is negligent. He is derelict in his duty in that regard. And if the French have to come in by themselves and liberate themselves from this situation, while their government stands by and does nothing, well, eventually, if it gets if it if it gets that bad, right? Because that, that's the precondition. If it really does get that bad, and you actually have some sort of uh, civil war slash a- actual war, ethnic uprising, whatever you want to call it, in France, and the French people are left to their own devices by their own government, or the the French government sides with the rioters, well. Now you have a third estate moment. You have a third estate. What's the, fir- the first estate was what? The nobility. The second estate was the clergy. The third estate was everybody else. The third estate being everybody else, the regular people. The people are the nation. The na- What is the third estate? It is the nation. So then what are the other two? and why would you need them? What is the purpose that the French would have for a government if, if the government is unwilling to do its duties? They have no purpose. I'm not saying that there's going to be a, a civil war in France. I'm not saying there's going to be, I'm not saying that this little revolt, revolt, this uprising, this mass wave of violence is going to stick the landing and become some, a feature of France for the next, month a few months or so I'm not saying that I'm not saying that France is in a war right now but if they do end up in war if this does stick because we see how things went in Sudan we see how things went in Ethiopia these things can pop up very quickly and they can last for a while well the jury is still out on how long it'll last in Sudan but don't think that it can't happen to France. I don't think that it has yet, but it is a possibility. And if that possibility manifests itself as a reality, and you do have war in France, actual war, not just civil unrest, but actual war, that that throws everything into question. France's position in NATO, that... France's position in the EU, France's position as a as a part of the liberal world order, it throws into question the French state, the French elections, the legitimacy of the French government. It throws into question everything. We could actually end up if it really does slide off the edge like that. Well, we could end up with another French revolution, and we can already see that the violence spread into Belgium, and the French are not the only ones dealing with migrant problems. Uh, the, the heartburn of consuming you uh, you know, uh, you know, eh, all these asylum seekers, taking in all these asylum seekers without integrating or assimilating them. France isn't the only one struggling with those issues. All of continental Europe is, save for Eastern Europe, who just said no. What happens if the Germans go down a similar route? What happens if the British have a similar revolt what happens to the belgians i said the belgians what happens what happens if the belgians do or the italians what about the greeks the netherlands uh, the, the dutch the spanish the portuguese where does that end where does it go we don't know now the there's a lot of preconditions before we even get to Uh, debating those questions, but that is a piece of speculation that we should keep on our minds. What if this does evolve into some revolt by the French people against this neoliberal idea that they have to become second-class citizens in their own country for an imported group of people? And if they do revolt that throws into question the legitimacy of the french state and then you have questions of what if they win the revolt what if they win what then who replaces the french government what what do we have the sixth french republic or are we going to have the fourth or, or the the fifth or the sixth french empire i don't know what i don't know what number they're on for that one or do they become something different altogether? what if they rewrite their constitution and what if their constitution starts to appeal to other people across the continent of Europe or even the world, like the possibilities are there. Something might come of this violence or perhaps things will simmer down. We really don't know, but uh, I I just, I won't even make those determinations. though no, I'll just leave some of the, I'll just leave you with some of those speculations, you know, something to keep on your mind. But what I will say is uh, that this is a very different sort of reception. The reception party for this massive wave of unrest in France has been very different from what we saw with the Wagner mutiny in Russia a few weeks ago. I mean, honestly, France burns for a week straight. A week straight, and it's still going. Nothing. Oh, Uh, France has some issues here and there. People revolt for rights, again, and fight against racism in France. And then you compare compare what's happening in France now and compare the coverage of it to what we had just two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, with the Wagner Rebellion. Civil war in Russia. Putin's about to be overthrown. All his military has turned against him. Vast swaths of the Russian military have joined Prigozhin. Putin only has a few hours left in the Kremlin. He's about to be overthrown. The coup that we've been waiting for this entire time has finally happened. All oh, Russia's in a civil war. Oh, Russia's collapsing, just like we said they were. And then it ended in two days. Putin's position is unstable. His, his first meeting with these ministers of this country, because he had a meeting between uh, him, uh, Modi of India, and Xi Jinping, his first meeting in the post-Wagner mutiny. How does this affect his relationship? It, like, it, they act as if a revolution just happened in Russia. <laughs> Whereas we are we might actually be witnessing a real revolution in France right now. Not because of the, the not the migrants revolting, but the French people revolting against the the rioters, and against the inaction of their government. The police revolting against the inaction of their government. What happens when the military is forced to pick sides? Like these are some serious questions to be had. Now, again, there are preconditions before we get to that. And like something has to happen. It, like it, the situation in France does have to escalate more before you even get to the point where you have to answer those questions but they're there in the background waiting to be asked by anyone willing to ask them but what we really know for sure is that this is definitely definitely one of those wait and see type situations so i'll digress and we will do exactly that we will wait and we will see but that my lovely listeners is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. It's changing. And we are gonna have fun watching that change together. Now I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.